I got a question. Sure. How question. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I had a project to 160. Okay. This is the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to the sixth hour. four years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. You do understand that you're under arrest now? So could I call my girlfriend and tell her that I couldn't come today? We'll give you an opportunity to to do that, okay? Did you kind of, I mean, honestly, after telling us what you told us, you kind of figured this was coming? Yeah? This is only for one day. Mushikot was a bitter 16 degrees on the morning of March the 1st, 2006. Brendan, a fastidious student, caught the school bus at the end of the gravel driveway of the Avery Salvage Yard just after 7am to arrive and start his school day by 8. However, on March the 1st, 2006, Detective Mark Wiegert and Special Agent Tom Fassbender would remove Brendan from Mishcott High a little before 10am, forever changing the course of his young life leaving the school at 10.05am. They would transport Brendan the 11.6 miles to Manitowoc Sheriff's Department, where the videotaped interrogation, the sum of the state's evidential showcase, would begin and continue over the course of the next four hours.
episode. I'm joined by Dave Thompson, not only partner, VP of operations, and instructor at Wicklander Zalowski, an industry leader in the field of non-confrontational interview techniques, but the driving force behind the collaboration with Brendan's legal team in filing an unprecedented friend of the court brief ahead of the February oral arguments of 2017 at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, and joining a catalogue of independent law enforcement instructors and consultants in an amicus brief in support of Brendan's writ of certiorari at the United States Supreme Court. 2019 saw Dave join Brendan's legal advocates as they announced filing a petition for clemency with the Governor of Wisconsin. Active and informed in his advocacy, Dave joins the six-hour to help unpack the techniques and circumstances surrounding the interrogations of Brendan Dassey. Hey, how are you? Hey, Dave, how are you doing? Before we join Brendan room can you share the watershed moment that spoke to you personally and professionally and the one that would see you become a leading advocate for Brendan that's a good question of the watershed moment I think probably the most heartbreaking part for me I was frustrated as I watched like many people um, all of the interviews the interrogations that, that Brendan was a, a subject of but I think the one moment if I had to, to call it out was probably the immediate recantation of his confession when his mother enters the room. I think it's it's a tough call between that um, and when Brendan also asks, you know, if he'll be able to get back to school and um, feels like his life is still is still normal. But I think that moment where he says, uh, you know, they got to my head. What if what I said is, you know, they find out it's not true. Um, it's an interesting look that you don't always get at the end of interrogation. You know, we know, and a lot of the academic experts know that in a a coerced, compliant confession, often there's an immediate recanting afterwards, but not often is it recorded on video immediately afterwards, as soon as the pressure goes away. And I think seeing that was for me really the first time that I could almost, you know, really feel and, and uh, resonate with what was going on in Brendan's mind at the time that he did not even realize what he just did. Absolutely. In terms of yourself and Wicklander Zalowski, how did you become involved in the appeals and clemency process? Well, um, I think, you know, at, at WZ, we consider ourselves uh, thought leaders in this, this field of non-confrontational interviewing. And like everybody else, I, I watched the documentary originally, you know, several years ago now over a binge watched over a weekend and came back to the office here and um, it was a, it was a pretty simple discussion of we observed and you know, I observed a interrogation, um, especially of a vulnerable subject that I didn't feel met, you know, some some ethical and uh, moral and uh, research based protocols that we would normally want to follow. So we came back and we discussed that and realized that you know if if we don't comment and don't say anything and uh, and kind of ignore this issue is, you know, number one, not in the best spirit of justice. And number two, 
by ignoring it in turn, I think condones and supports it. Um, I've got a, a quote on my wall here that I'm, I'm looking at that says, you know, if you are neutral in times of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. I think it was, you know, very similar feeling. So um, the choice was to let's at least use this as a platform to educate, educate people. And um, I'd written an article and then actually presented Brendan's case in front of, uh, at a conference that we hosted in front of certified forensic interviewers and was overwhelmed with the support on behalf of Brendan uh, that, hey, this, this wasn't done the right way. And interviewers, practitioners, investigators agreeing that this wasn't done the right way. So that was really the initiation of our, of our involvement and our interest in it. And from there uh, was connected with, you know, the uh, Brendan's team of both Laura Nyrider and Steve Driesen and, and working together with, you know, incredible people like them um, to just offer our support however we could. So we know that, we know that not to be true. And I would also point out that in the amicus brief, I think it speaks volumes that the law enforcement interrogation trainers who joined the amicus brief say they use this interrogation video as an example of what not to do. That's how unreasonable the state court decision was in this case. Trainers use this video to show what not to do. And just for a point of reference for everyone before we begin, can you explain a little between the differences, what the differences between a witness interview and a suspect interview? Yeah, well, I think it's a good, it's a good question. The difference between a witness interview and a, and a subject interview is, is really relevant to what's the investigator's state of mind when they're entering that, that conversation? What is the goal of the conversation? Um, to me, a witness interview can range from, um, an interview method like the cognitive interview, which is heavily based on asking open-ended questions, fact gathering. The subject, you know, from a custodial standpoint, is free to leave at any time. Um, there's no, there should not be any presumption of guilt. Really, the aim for that interview is allowing the subject to tell their story, and then that gets supplemented with the other evidence you have in your investigation to try to corroborate or disprove and, and determine maybe that witness. There's always a witness, maybe eventually they become a, a suspect based off of the evidence. In a suspect interview, um, which traditionally here would be, would be titled as an interrogation, uh, whether we like to use that, that word or not, that's uh, unfortunately the way that, that we're kind of defining it here is from an interview to an interrogation. I think one of the biggest differences is that's gonna include some type of accusation at some point where the investigator is intending to ask a person if they committed some type of act of, of wrongdoing. Uh, and when you transition into that, that conversation, you know, that different rules apply from a custodial environment, meaning is the person have the freedom to leave, uh, they have a right to an attorney, and do I have evidence that actually points me at this person? Um, or, and in this case, one of the issues we can get into is, is there evidence that points me in that direction, or do I just have a theory of the crime and a bias that points me in that, in that direction? But to me, the simple answer to your question is that the underlying commonality to a witness interview and a suspect interview should be our goal is to get as much reliable information as possible, whether that's a confession or not. I think, you know, the, the transition from witness interview to um, interrogation was those lines were definitely blurred for Brendan on more than a few occasions. So if we just join Brendan in Crivets um, on November the 6th of 2005. Can you tell me if you remember that girl standing there taking a picture? Yeah. 
Was she? Huh? Why won't you tell me? Did you see her standing there taking a picture? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that? You scared? Huh? Yeah. Why are you scared about saying that that girl took that picture? Now, did you see her standing there taking a picture when you got that bus? Okay. What day was that? Monday. What time did you get off the bus? 8.45. What was she taking a picture of? Was her vehicle there too? What happened to that girl? She didn't leave. What happened to that girl? Well, she, was, she stayed there five minutes and she left. No, that's what you're being told to say. Brandon. What happened to that girl? asserts that this was an interview uh, despite you know the detective seizing the car that Brendan and his brother had been in which left Brendan you know totally reliant on the detectives for transportation there was no Miranda read even though the use of a persuasive interrogation technique was in play so we know that Brendan's questioned for 45 minutes I think the first 20 minutes is academic it's non-confrontational but the tone noticeably shifts when O'Neill changes gear and the questioning becomes more accusatory. Can you explain the transition from interview to interrogation? Uh, what was wrong with the approach? And how might an effectively trained interrogator have handled this interaction with Brendan? That's a good question. And I think, you know, it's something to really look at, at uh, with open eyes and both sides of the, of the perspective of, um, a, an investigator's standpoint, you may very well be interviewing what you think is a witness. And this is really what I, I think the overall argument you hear from the state in general terms, but um, is you interview somebody who is a witness and that's the presumption of your conversation and the context of it. However, if at some point during that conversation, I have evidence, for example, if, if let's just go with a, a outside of Brendan's case, um, I have, an, I have a, an arson, somebody set a fire to a building and I have video surveillance of them, you know, at, in that building at a certain time, but they're just a witness. So I interview them as a witness and they tell me a story that they've never been in that building and they've never been aware of that building and never been even in that, in that area or in that, uh, that market, which is clearly a contradiction of the evidence that I have. That conversation might turn, um, more into a, you know, representing or presenting the contradiction of the evidence that I have and the statement that they made. And so one of the difficulties you deal with and to the, to the conversation you're referring to <clears throat> is sometimes an interviewer may not actually be prepared that that's where the conversation was headed uh, because their pure intent was as a witness. Now in this specific case, what I think we're lacking um, is that evidentiary reason that that conflict, that contradiction they would actually tell me to, to transition this into some type of accusatory interview. And I think the second problem, um, regardless if this is a witness interview or a subject interview, when you're interviewing somebody of uh, Brendan's age at the time, uh, his you know, intellectual capacity, 
which which we have understood to be challenging, especially in a conversation like this. Um, you know, the, the right thing to do would be to have some type of representation, regardless if he requested it or 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 not. Um, but to do the right thing on both, you know, behalf of the investigation and Brendan. So I think when you make that transition in the U.S. is when we start to look at when does Miranda, uh, when does the way when does the waiver of Miranda apply? And, you know, that's going to be something up for the courts to decide on a case-by-case basis. But in general terms, if this conversation is going to lead to an accusation and could potentially lead to this person incriminating themselves and not able to leave the room, um, generally speaking, that's, that's when, you know, Miranda should be advised. Yeah. I mean, they encourage Brendan to, you know, think about the girl. Um, they minimize his involvement by telling him he won't go to jail. Um, you know, and they're, they're actively trying to overcome Brendan's denials. So uh, I think, you know, there is a noticeable shift when O'Neill gets quite confrontational with Brendan. Right. I, I agree. Not sorry to cut you off there, but I think that, that you made an important point. Um, you know, asking somebody about a conflict of, of evidence is one thing, right? Saying we have a, uh, video of you at this location and you said you weren't there but if somebody gives a story and the response is to reaccuse them and not allow them to to present you know their side of the story uh to me that that no longer represents a witness interview and i think that's that's as you mentioned before kind of a clear shift in the tone um and the ability you know what at that point what is the goal of the conversation is really the question to be asked of the interviewer absolutely i think you hit the nail on the head I mean, you know, they had separated Brendan from his brother. They had removed his his transportation. So in in that environment, do you think that any reasonable person in Brendan's shoes would have felt free to terminate that interview and leave? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. There's a um a study that was recently done here um with with some of our academic partners and friends that put together you know, to John Jay University, um, Dr. Fabiana Alceste actually was, I think, the lead, the lead researcher on the study, and it was on the perception of custody. And what was interesting is looking at the perception from not just, you know, you asking me as a, you know, representative of a, of a practitioner or the investigator or law enforcement, essentially, um, but then also looking at the perspective of a, a common person, a lay person, or looking at it from the perspective of a jury or a prosecutor. And so what you see is obviously a, a bit of a variable from what a detective might think as far as are you free to leave versus what that person might think. And what we see in a lot of these cases, especially similar, you know, in Brendan's case, somebody of his age and with limited interaction with law enforcement and his and his experience, it's hard for some a lay person to think, I'm just gonna walk out of a room with a couple of detectives. Or I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave because we're we are conditioned as we grow up that law enforcement is is there to protect us and rightly so and they're there on our side and if you're asked by somebody of authority to sit down and have a conversation to be able to get up and leave seems not just rude but seems like it's not something you're supposed to or allowed to do so yeah I think that's definitely something that comes into play here and clearly you know if in in his best interest based off of what happened in that conversation. If I think if he knew he had that choice, he would have got up and left. And I think that's, that's, you know, or at least asked for support in that room. Yeah. 
And, and also, I mean, it's not widely known, but they did conduct a second interview with Brendan on the 10th of November. And it's in that interaction that they have Brendan saying that he had been at a bonfire at Stevens around the 1st of November. But Brendan does tell the detectives that he didn't see Teresa Hobbuck and was only at the fire for an hour or so. Yeah, so yeah. then, then we, we move on. We're getting close to February now. And we know that Kayla Avery, a child herself, has told a story that implicates Brendan and piques the interest of Calumet County investigators Mark Weger and Wendy Baldwin. Does reviewing that statement help you remember? Yes. All right. What did Brendan tell you about the fire? You'll, you'll have to pull the microphone a little closer so we can hear you. He didn't tell me anything. I, I kind of made up the statement, and I'm sorry. All right. What did you make up? What, tell us what you saying you made up. That he seen body parts in there. I didn't. He didn't see. I didn't. He didn't tell me anything like that, or he didn't see Jesus' body or anything like that. And you also told the officers in a separate conversation that day that Brendan had seen Teresa alive in Stephen's trailer and that she was pinned up in a chair. Yes, but that's not true. All right. So you're telling us you made something up to get Brendan into trouble? Not really. I was just really confused about everything. Now, this results in Detective Wiegert and Special Agent Tom Fassbender removing Brendan from class at Michigan High on the 27th of Feb. Now, that would be the first of three interrogations on the 27th. Right. So this interrogation begins at 12.30 and finishes at 2.14. I call them interrogations, even though uh, at trial, you know, Wiegert asserts that these are witness interviews. What are your thoughts that the investigators bypass the interview phase and move straight into interrogation despite despite Wiggett's assertion at trial that it was simply a witness interview. Right. Well, and I think what's difficult, and you, you kind of just uh, referenced this, is there's a benefit to us, and we'll get to the March uh, in interrogation a little bit later, with having video recording. And I believe on February 27th, there was, like you mentioned, three and one of which is there's a video recording, one is audio recorded, and I think one, there was no recording. And so what's, what's really difficult, and the reason that recording is so important, and we can get back to your question, but I think this is a good time to educate people on this whole conversation we're having, and this whole, um, you know, the fascination of the documentary, Making a Murderer, and the reason Brendan's case was spotlighted so much, I don't think that would exist if there wasn't at least a video recording of what happened. And so I think it just highlights, even when it's done wrong, how important, or probably especially when it's done wrong, but how important that having either an audio or audio video transcript of the conversation can be to everybody involved um, in the search for justice here. So when you, when you ask about these conversations on the 27th, I would agree with you um, from an interrogation standpoint. You know, at this point, we've got um, a conversation that's leading with the ones at least that are recorded, more investigator talking than Brendan talking. You know, more um, leading questions, more over talking of the subject, and and clearly at least that 
it's perceived that the investigators had a specific goal in this conversation. It was no longer a uh, an alibi type statement or just you know tell me tell me more about that event. This was more of a very specific guided conversation with a specific goal in mind. Yeah, for sure. And it's this interrogation that Brendan puts himself for the first time at the crime scene. And I think it also highlights, you know, his compliance to the interrogation method that is being used. But then once we've, we've got the first um, interrogation at 2.14, it finishes and Brennan goes back to class. He's then removed from school at three o'clock and transported to Two Rivers Police Station. Right. The second interrogation of the day begins at 3.21 and finishes approximately 43 minutes later. Now, there's no lawyer, there's no guardian. It's now that Brendan receives his first Miranda warning, which he waves, as we know many children and innocent people do. And I think it's a valid question to this day whether Brendan understood those rights. And what are your thoughts, Dave, on the Miranda warnings Brendan receives over this day? So it's a great observation. I think, um, you know, sometimes we look at the the letter of the law and the spirit of the law when you, when you talk about things like this. And, you know, was Miranda administered as the agency, as the law is written, is one question. But was it administered in the, uh, in the best interest uh, for justice here? Meaning, does the subject actually understand what, what their rights are and what happens if they waive those rights? Uh, and I think clearly, especially with some of the other experts on this case that have looked into Brendan's um, you know, intellectual capacity specific to his ability uh, in reading and writing and comprehension that you know, understanding his right to counsel or representation, understanding he has the right to, you know, interrupt or stop this questioning, um, it just seems absurd to me that he would actually feel competent to do that or to, uh, to understand that himself without somebody really walking him through it or somebody asking for him to explain it backwards, uh, you know, back to the investigator. So, I think that'd be a pretty tough argument, in my, in my personal opinion, that Brendan was fully aware of what his rights were in this conversation, or really that he was a suspect in this, in this incident. I absolutely agree. I don't think, you know, from what we see and, and, and from what you read, even going back to the Crivets interview, you know, we can, we can read the investigators and go, okay, they're thinking Brendan has something to do with this. Then you go into February the 27th, and I think, you know, Wigget and Fassbender are definitely thinking Brendan has something to do with this. Brendan's oblivious to all of this. You know, he doesn't comprehend the situation that he himself is in. There doesn't seem to be a sense of Brendan feeling any type of uh, danger or discomfort in, you know, these initial conversations. I'm sure it must have been traumatic. It would be traumatic for anyone. But the idea that he would feel that he could get up and leave, you know, as Brendan has said, he just wanted to help them. Right. And you see that, I think, you know, I've referenced a few times, Brendan is a, is a vulnerable or, or more highly susceptible subject. But, you know, outside of Brendan's case, I think it's something we even see in, you know, the, the average, you know, I said, use the word average, meaning maybe a, an adult um, that doesn't have intellectual capacity issues, you know, the common layperson, they also have the same thought process. I'm here to assist if I'm a witness. I'm here to comply for the most part, you know, with law enforcement. 
Um, but they probably, for the most part, people don't feel like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for my attorney because now it looks like I'm guilty, right? That's this kind of, mm. you know, perspective that we have, or I don't want to tell the police, I don't remember anything. Um, even if I don't, because I want to, I want to help them. And so, you know, to go into a whole other topic, we start to deal with more eyewitness misidentification and, uh, biases that are formed by the investigator because witnesses lead them down the wrong, wrong, uh, road primarily because their goal is to help and they feel like they have to. So I think you extrapolate that to Brendan's situation and it's even worse. Yeah. When we, we move into the uh, Two Rivers Police Department, for example, that when well, I would think that Brendan was in custody for, for this particular right. interrogation, we see that, you know, Brendan's positioned in a certain spot in the room. The room is sparsely furnished there's an observation mirror and we know that this interrogation leads Brendan into unknowingly inculpating himself. Would you consider this a textbook interrogation setup in terms of the environment that he's placed in? I think it depends whose textbook you're reading. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think when you, the way you asked the question, um, yeah, I think from the outside looking in, I mean, I'm looking at an image of that, that specific interrogation right now. Um, and you just look at it from the outside in and you've got, you know, two investigators with Brendan, you know, appearing to be in the corner up against, you know, up against the desk. You have one investigator leaning towards him, kind of moving a little bit closer. And so I, I think again, to the, the common person, yeah, that's absolutely what this would feel like to me is, um, I'm not sure if I'm able to get up and leave. It's, you know, it seems like I've been, I've already been, you know, even if you use the word interview for the earlier conversations, I've been interviewed multiple times. Now I've been transported to a different location, police department. I'm in this room with two people, two investigators, um, who essentially are you know, obstructing my way out. I, I might appear to be in, in custody here. So I, yeah, I definitely think that would be a reasonable assumption to make. And why, why is the environment set up that way? What effect is it you know, supposed to have on, on the person being interrogated? I think there's a variety of things you're, you know, you're looking at. Um, I think, you know, when, when you look at the spatial distance between yourself and another person in, in any conversation is, you know, you don't want to be so far apart from somebody that it's kind of uncomfortable to, to disclose personal information or a secret. Um, but in our, you know, in our concepts and we focus on non-confrontational interviewing is our goal is also not to get too close to somebody or put somebody in a position where they feel like, it's an intimidating conversation. So it's, it's trying to find that balance, uh, that proximity of, you know, where does somebody feel comfortable to have a conversation with you? You know, in our methodology, we typically wouldn't have a desk involved in between us and the subject to create more, you know, more open dialogue. If it was a non-custodial conversation, uh, typically we'd have the subject closest to the door so they could get up and leave at any time. Uh, now, one of the things that comes into play when you look at a room setup for an, an interview or an interrogation is always obviously, you know, the safety of both the officer and the, and the subject as well. So that sometimes uh, can change, can change the landscape, but looking at this, you know, depending on how the investigators were trained sitting on the edge of the chair and potentially moving closer throughout the conversation, uh, to me creates this atmosphere of, uh, you know, you and me are having this conversation. There's nobody else involved and we have to talk about it, um, or, or you can't leave. And it's without saying those words is almost the perception if you're sitting in the subject's chair that, that you probably would have. 
Would you agree that Brendan was in custody at Two Rivers? I would argue on his behalf that yes, I think it was, you know, I know the, the state has a different perception there, but you know, the, the way to answer your question is custody really is defined by their perception of custody, uh, the subject. And so trying to look, you know, if it was me in that situation, I would probably answer it differently, but I'm well-educated on my rights in that situation. So to answer your question and looking at it from Brendan's perspective, I would, I would believe that Brendan felt like he was in custody. So that to me would mean that yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, Brendan waves his Miranda rights. Right. But he doesn't indicate that he understood his rights and he's not asked whether he understood his rights. You know, it is a complex warning and how it lands on a juvenile such as Brendan uh, is worrying. I agree. And I, th I think what's important from an educational standpoint, you know, again, is we've got a lot of law enforcement, you know, officers and detectives out there that want to do the right thing and are trying to do it the right way. And at the end of the day, they fall back on their training. So it really comes down to, you know, our investigators appropriately trained on not just how to deliver Miranda, but also how to be aware of somebody who may be um, more vulnerable or susceptible to coercion, and also somebody who may not fully understand Miranda. Have they been given guidance or training? You know, as the agency or the county or the state told them, if you're going to interview a juvenile, for example, Here's, here's, you know, three extra protocols we need you to take when advising of Miranda. They need to explain it back to you. You need to have a parent or guardian or, or whatever those, those protocols might be. But I think that's one of the things that, that sometimes people miss is, you know, sometimes investigators are doing exactly what they were trained, trained to do. And that's really what it comes back to. And we also know that, you know, that's not the only interrogations that happen on the 27th. So Brendan is interrogated later that evening. Wigert and Fassbender arranges for Brendan, Blaine and Barb to spend the night at the Fox Hills Resort. But there's no audio or visual recording of this. Right. There is a document in the case files. Again, you know, there's a murkiness concerned with why it wasn't recorded. But it's the March 1st interrogation and resulting statement that forms the case against Brendan. And it is the only evidence the state has. So if we set the scene, we've got Wigget and Fassbender remove Brendan from school on the morning of March the 1st. He's transported to the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department. During the drive, he is read his Miranda rights and gives permission to the investigators to collect bleach stained jeans, which he had spoken of the night before in Fox Hills. They arrive at the police station at 10.43 a.m. Um, a little more comfortable here and stuff. And what we like to you had a couple of days since we last talked now, which was Monday, and you had a chance to reflect and breathe, I imagine. Just and yeah, I'm, I'm, we um so you the only one? I got, I got more in here. Okay. And uh I kinda call it to sense debriefing in a way, you know, just let you talk to us a little and um, and, and we've had also a chance for two days now to look at what you said and, and listen to, to tapes a little and stuff like that. And, you know, we look at that and we say, well, you know, Brendan gave us, honestly gave us this information, this information, that information, maybe I'll call them dots or whatever. And some of the dots 
when we look at it, say, well, I think we need some matching up here, just a little tightening up or something. We, we feel that, that maybe, I think Mark and I both feel that maybe there's some, some more that you could tell us um, that you may have held back for whatever reasons. And I don't want to assure you that Mark and I both are in your corner, we're on your side, and you... Dave, can you walk us through the techniques used and the process Brendan was subjected to during this pivotal interrogation? The one on March 1st specifically? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's the one really I've got... Um, a couple important documents. I got a lot of documents in front of me from this case. It's kind of a never-ending, never-ending pile, which is um, both overwhelming and inspiring because you see all the different supporters of, of Brendan here. But you know, looking through, uh, we supported a, a, an amicus brief to the United States Supreme Court and another one earlier than that to the uh, to the federal court, um, seventh seventh district. And you know, these are really mostly focused on that interrogation on March 1st, because you've got just a, a multitude of different tactics that were used. So, you know, if you look at real high level, then we can kind of break this down. When you get a false confession, and something that you'll, you'll hear from and some of your other guests, like Dr. Richard Leo, um, typically false confessions have these three main categories. They've got misclassification, meaning how did we get the wrong person in the room in the first place? Uh, and then what biases did that provide? We have coercion. So what incentivized an innocent person to potentially confess? And then the third piece is contamination, which would be, you know, once they did confess, why and how was their or their confession so detailed and intricate that they didn't actually do it? And so if you apply those those kind of three concepts globally, to Brendan's case, the misclassification we've already covered a bit with um, the lack of evidence, the you know, almost presumption of guilt by the investigators in some of these interviews, um, you know, Kayla coming forward and, and then Brendan um, essentially contradicting some of the, the statements that it seems like in, uh, in the earlier interviews and on February 27th. And so now he's in this, in this room. And when you look at the video and everybody's seen these clips, on the outside looking in, and the reason I really like this, this video for training purposes, is you don't see physical coercion, right? You don't see what, when people think false confession, they think torture techniques, and they must have had a phone book and a, you know, some kind of device to create pain and, and suffering for the subject to confess. In this case, you don't see that. You see Brendan sitting on a couch. Um, you know, investigators are, you know, you know, relatively further away from him in the beginning at least. And it seems like a comfortable atmosphere. And so I think what's important is when we dive into the actual text and the transcript of the dialogue here is you can see it's littered with uh, coercive statements, threats and promises, uh, fact feeding, contamination, and just really a, a recipe for a, you know, involuntary confession with, with zero reliability. I think that'd be my general comments on that on that piece so far. I mean, statements from the March 1st interrogation, you know, become the evidence for the state at Brennan's trial. It's worth noting, I think, for, for everyone that investigators never find any physical evidence linking Brendan to the murder of Teresa Holbuck. I find the interrogation stomach churning. I'm sure that's shared by millions of people. 
However, there's one sequence that I find particularly disturbing. And that's when the investigators purposely bring Brendan to the point of inculpating himself. When Wiget says, what did he make you do, Brendan? You know, right. it's okay. What did he make you do? Then we have the ensuing story about, you know, the cutting of her throat. Right. We know the victim wasn't stabbed and there's no knife uh, ever found. What else happens to her in her head? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this for us to believe you. Come on, Brendan. What else? We know, we just need you to tell us. That's all I can remember. All right, I'm just going to come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? Because I couldn't think of it. This, this, and, you know, there's a lot that leads up to that point, but I agree with you. That, that to me, let's ignore for a second. Because uh, I know there's a lot, of, a lot of people out there that have uh, differing perspectives, obviously, on Brendan's case. And I think, you know, where, where, where I stand here. But I think even if you ignore whether this was a true or false confession, and you're strictly looking at the reliability of a confession, meaning not if it's true or false, but how reliable is it? Do we, is there enough details provided here that we can say this confession was given independently by somebody who had information that we didn't have before? And so if you look at it from just that perspective, when the detectives and the investigators go through this line of questioning, where literally every question is providing a detail of the crime, it, it completely removes your ability as an, as an expert of reviewing that statement, removes your ability to say, yeah, this is a, a reliable confession because every piece of information we're giving, all Brendan is doing is agreeing to it. All he's doing is, you know, I have a, a slide, I, when I present this, this specific piece you're talking about, I have a slide on the PowerPoint that says, you know, guessing or confessing with a question mark, because even the tone of his voice sounds like Brendan's not really sure what the answer is supposed to be. And when the, tech, when the investigators get to the point of, um, you know, who shot her in the head, with a, just a specific leading question like that that contains a very important detail of the, of the crime, um, how do you measure reliability when somebody just says, you know, he did? And you say, well, why didn't you tell us that in the first place? Well, I couldn't remember it. I mean, to have any any credibility, reliability to that is is to me just completely a huge miss, a huge mistake. And secondly, as an investigator, hearing a alleged confession presented to you in that way should immediately cause you to uh, question. The, the reliability and the validity of what you just heard. And I don't think that that, that occurred. I think it, it felt like um, we received an admission, you know, and maybe the job is done. And I think that, that should have sent some fireworks up for me, uh, red flags, that this is not the way that this should have occurred. They don't, in, in that particular piece, they don't stop. Their tone doesn't vary at all when in front of them they have this, this young I would imagine uh, that they knew that Brendan had limitations, you know, having asked how to spell certain words such as rack and garage and things like that. 
they, the tone doesn't vary when this child says, I, I, I cut her throat. Right. right. So they're not looking for that. And that's what leads them into, all right, I'm just going to come out and ask you who shot her in the head. I mean, that's obviously contamination. Yeah. And I think the other point you just brought up, which is interesting is, you know, the investigators, there's some, there's some comments during the trial about Brendan's behavior um, earlier in these interviews that, you know, clearly he was, this is some statements from the, from the state, but clearly, you know, he was withholding information or he was deceptive or how, I forget how they specifically worded it, but based off of the way he was sitting, based off his behavior. And so I think personally, right, we know that behavior is not a, an accurate um, assessment of truth or deception. However, in this, in this put the, putting ourselves in this mindset, investigator feels like, you know, I think he was being uh, deceptive or evasive based off his behavior. Well, if you apply that same rule later in the conversation, as you just mentioned, almost at a emotionless confession to a really violent crime should also raise similar flags. Um, you know, why, why is he just answering the questions the way he is? There should be some, a different level of emotion here. There should be something else. And so, yeah, I think you know, contamination is, again, if, if, if you ignore the opinion from some, whether you're looking at innocence or guilt, if you're strictly looking at reliability, you know, it's, it's near impossible to judge when you contaminate a confession. Yeah. I remember last year speaking with Dr. Leo and he brought up the the voluntariness question and whether or not that should be a reliability question. Yeah. I think, you know, we can talk about the voluntariness here in a second as well, but I, you know, one thing I've learned when looking at cases like Brendan's trying to look at the reliability is really, you know, creating a timeline of evidence. And, and I learned this from um, James Trainum, who's a former, former homicide detective who actually wrote a book, uh, how police generate false confessions. And he's been a, a great, uh, supporter and mentor for some of these types of conversations. And, you know, Mr. Uh, Detective Trainum, he has a, a pretty neat way of going back. It's very simple, but utilizing a timeline and evaluating when evidence was presented, maybe an admission, for example, as evidence, when did that first get presented into the case? And when you look back and you analyze a case like Brendan's and something as simple as, um, you know, he shot her in the head, right? That specific admission is trying to look back and ideally, if you have a guilty subject with a reliable confession, there's going to be information that they provide to you that were never provided to them. They weren't in the media, they weren't in a crime scene photo that you put on the desk, they weren't in one of your stories you told during an interview. It was an independent statement made by the subject that you can go corroborate with evidence. And when you look at Brendan's case, I don't believe any of that exists at all. And that should be extremely concerning to that reliability piece. And even, you know, when he says, I couldn't think of it, I think right. again, yeah. you know, we, there are so many flags for the investigators. I know that we've discussed it before as to whether or not it was purposely done or, you know, the investigators were doing what they thought was right in, in that instance. But, you know, there are so many flags for them. And when Brendan says, I couldn't think of it. I mean, that just totally speaks to Brendan guessing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, when we get to this point in the interrogation, a lot of people that, you know, I've had the chance to, to present this case in front of 
you know, a lot of practitioners and just in, in the common, the lay person is they don't understand, well, why would I, I would never confess, right? It does, it's not just that line of questioning. I would never confess to something I didn't do. And so I think you have to do is really look backwards in this interrogation to the repeated, you know, the threats and promises and, you know, really a combination of Brendan feeling like there's no other way out because we we're going to make sure that you realize we know you did it. And secondly, um, even if you tell us you did it, there's not, there's not going to be a consequence associated with it. And I think, you know, we can talk about some of those specifics, but that's really the, the meat of how did we get to that line of questioning that you just, you just cited. And then we, we look at, you know, the, the opinions that have, um, have, have been delivered in the case. So we've got, you know, the federal magistrate judge Duffin, we've got the three judge panel majority, finding the interrogators use suggestive interrogation techniques, false promises of leniency and cumulative effect of the coercive techniques, the leading, the fact feeding. And obviously I think we see throughout all of the, the interrogations, uh, there's a desire on Brennan's behalf to please the investigators. Why, why do you think we saw such a definitive split at the en banc of 4-3? And do you think there is a general lack of understanding of the impact of coercive interrogation techniques and how they land on juveniles and those with intellectual and speech language impairments? I think um, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think when you look at this split, and it's frustrating, I, you know, I'm looking through the decision right now, and you've got just a couple highlights here from the contamination. Um, you even have a statement, you know, his confession became a litany of inconsistencies which was true, right? Almost, almost everything that Brendan said was either inaccurate or he had to change based off of what the investigators told him to talk about reliability. And then you've got another statement, and this is, I know you, you referenced this as well and what you're doing here, but this is my, probably my, one of my favorite lines in the, the, uh, the decision here. Uh, Dashi's confession involuntary, et cetera, but rather it was death by a thousand cuts because of the cumulative effect, and that's where you just were just reading. And I think that's what's really difficult in this case and why you see that divisive split is you don't see a subject pinned up against the wall, um, you know, physically abused or beaten until they confess. And I think that's an easy one for people to say, well, yeah, clearly that's involuntary. I think to, this is a much wider problem for not just, not just confessions, but for forensic sciences and a variety of other things, but to educate law enforcement, prosecutors, defense attorneys, juries, and judges as to the psychological impact of coercive techniques, you know, that could be, have the same result that physical torture or coercion can have. And so that's really a struggle. And that's, you know, the satisfying or inspiring part, I guess, for, for myself um, to be involved in this is I think that's really my role is to try to help educate that these techniques that could be used um, could incentivize an innocent person to confess, and nobody believes that they would confess unless they've been in that position. And so I think when you start to look in Brendan's case, and you look at any case that, that they review the, the voluntariness of the confession is they're looking at the totality of the circumstances. In Brendan's case, if you only played a five minute video clip to somebody, they may think this is perfect. He's just sitting on a couch, he looks comfortable, the tone is you know, uh, respectful. When you watch the entire thing and you add on top of that Brendan's vulnerability and you see re the repeated 
um, phrases like, I'm in your corner, I think you're all right, you don't have to worry about things, I stand behind you, honesty will set you free, I'm not a cop right now, it's like I'm your father. When you hear things like that, and you put yourself in the mind of a, of a 16-year-old kid with you know the vulnerabilities we've already mentioned, with no representation there, kind of an intimidating environment, you feel like, no, maybe this is legitimate. Maybe I just tell them what they want, whatever they want to hear, I just want to help because I'm supposed to help. There won't be a consequence. And then secondly, every time Brendan tries to tell the truth, you continue to hear things like, um, we know that's not true. That's not how it happened. Well, didn't it happen this way? And so you have this, you're putting yourself, and this is all to answer your question of how do you educate, why this divisiveness? is really trying to put yourself in the perspective of somebody who every time you try to give your story, you're told it's not true. And so you come to the conclusion, I'll tell them something that's not true, but I don't want to get in trouble. But now they've told me I won't get in trouble for that thing. So what's really the, what's the harm in just agreeing at this point? I just want to get out of here. And I think all of that, all those emotions, all those feelings is exactly what transpires at the end of this entire piece when you hear Brendan ask if he can go back to school, you tell you hear Brendan tell his mom that they got into my head. It's really a, a culmination of these coercive techniques of I feel like I have no other way out than to just agree with you and hope this hope this all comes. You know, I wake up from this awful dream. Yeah, it's uh, it's heartbreaking. Knowing what we know from uh, being in the interrogation room with Brendan, can you now take us through? what a best practice interrogation process would involve, particularly if you have a, you know, developmentally delayed juvenile on the receiving end. And in a best practice interrogation, do you think Brendan's innocence would still make him susceptible to giving a false confession, even in that context? Uh, on to your second question first, but I think that's a simpler one. And yes, is the answer. I think, you know, no technique methodology is is going to be immune to the possibility of getting false information um you know if you think about a you could just approach somebody on a on the street in a in what's might be called a tactical interview and just ask them one question and they might give you false information um we don't know if it's a voluntary false confession if it's coerced compliance because they feel like i'm intimidated or maybe they don't even remember so they just agree to you and it's more of a um, you know, memory distrust, internalized confession. So I think your second part of the question is no matter the method, there's always going to be a risk. The outset of that, right, the, the impact of that afterwards is to not accept a confession as an end-all be-all. And unfortunately, when, you know, when we go to a, a trial, confession holds so much weight. But as an investigator and prosecutors, should really be of the mindset that even if you got a quote, I did it, do we have details that substantiate that crime? How can we prove that I did it was true, right? Your investigation should never end with I did it. It should take that as an independent piece of, of evidence, of testimony, and compare that against the other available evidence that you have. And if you have contradictions, your duty is to investigate those. Uh, not create a theory that just makes them fit together. So that's that's the second part. Um, what would be the most appropriate method is, is a really good question. I think primarily there's a, there's a few things that we want to consider. I would absolutely make sure everything is video recorded, which we did do here. Um, now, not having the entire video played at trial 
is, a, is another obstacle. But at least from an investigator's perspective, I would make sure it's recorded. Um, I think as when you mentioned somebody of Brendan's you know, stature and, and vulnerability, uh, I think having a representative, whatever that is defined by for this, for this type of interview would be beneficial for everyone. Um, obviously for Brendan, but even if you do think you're, this is the suspect, if I have direct evidence that this suspect was implicated in a crime, um, I want to make sure that the way that I'm conducting the conversation is, is done appropriately. They have the appropriate representation so that if I do receive a confession, that there isn't an argument to suppress that confession down the road, that I am, I am playing by the rules per se of doing it the right way. So I think Having a, a um, whether it's a guardian, which I, I know there's a lot of research out there that says that may not even be the best representation, but or an attorney, um, some type of counsel, uh, I think absolutely in a case when you're dealing with a juvenile with some type of mental capacity issues. The interview method itself, if I was in the investigator's position and I had the information that they had with the, I'll just say alleged evidence they had at the time, um, I would probably use more of a cognitive interview where the task here is in, in, instead of a guilt presumptive process, which is what it seems like did happen, it's more of a um, memory enhancing, you know, using uh, memory triggering or memory probing type questions and open-ended questions, expansion questions, echo questions, where you're really allowing Brendan to tell a story in his words uh, to try to obtain more information so that you can go substantiate or investigate it versus in this conversation seems like, you know, the investigators told the story and just had Brendan agree to it, where instead I'd, I prefer Brendan tell the story um, and I go investigate or, you know, to corroborate or disprove what he said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a distinct lack of uh, corroborated evidence. So questionable, very questionable. Yeah. So Dave, where, where to from here for juvenile interrogations? What needs to be done? So what type of legislation needs to be enacted to, you know, give a better protection for those that are most exposed and at risk of succumbing to the pressures in the interrogation room? I think that's, um, you know, it's hard to look for positives in this case right now as, as Brendan is still not free. But if, if we try to look and, you know, one of the positives is, is Brendan from, you know, talking to his, his support team. And it seems like his, his spirits and his hope really keeps everybody, everybody excited and inspired to keep fighting the good fight. Um, but one of the other benefits is the awareness of the lack of guidance, specialized guidance for juvenile interrogations. Um, I think, you know, a few things, if, if I could just snap my fingers and, and change some of some laws, I think one thing we have in the U.S. is we have, you know, the legally the ability to lie about evidence, right? Frazier versus Cup is a is a case law that allows law enforcement to to lie about specific types of, of evidence, um, which you know globally I think is is already an issue, but specifically with with kids, um, I I think that is just going that just clearly creates a bigger problem. Most people don't know that law enforcement can lie about evidence. Uh, so now put yourself in the position of a 16-year-old kid being interviewed by the, by the police. You tell your story that's true, and the police tell you that they have your DNA or your fingerprint, even though they don't. 
and you're going to start to second guess your story because you don't think law enforcement can lie. So I think one of the, one of the things that I wish would change is, you know, let's stop lying, especially to kids in our interrogations and in our interviews. It seems uh, contradictory that we would lie to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. I think secondly, um, having a better protocol, I don't have a solution for this, but just something that I think needs to be, needs to be done more efficiently is having a better protocol for a risk assessment of who we are interviewing. Um, it's not just age. You know, we could be interviewing a mature adult that's, that's suffering from some type of you know, special need or, or mental capacity issue that we're unaware of. Um, how do we become aware of that without violating their you know, privacy or asking questions we shouldn't ask? But what type of risk assessment are we doing uh, to determine the person I'm talking to you know, may be more susceptible? In, uh, in one of the court's uh, responses here, they, they use the phrase a sliding scale of coercion you know, based off of what you say to me might be perceived differently than what you said to Brendan. So I think having the ability to measure that would be, would be important. Um, I think mandatory recording, you know, I think we're at now 25 or 26 states now have mandates on recording of felony, certain felony level interrogations. I think, you know, any accusation of a, a juvenile probably should be recorded, documented in some way, even if it's, even if it's just audio, but preferably, you know, video recording if feasible. Um, I think it allows more transparency to that conversation. Um, it actually... I think reduces the pressure on law enforcement to just go after a confession because now somebody's statements are more are memorialized. Um, and I think having representation is really one of the most important pieces uh, to, to kind of end this list of things that, and then there's, there's just countless things to do, but um, having some type of representation, because as we discussed earlier, just giving advising of Miranda and having a 16 year old uh, say, I don't know, I, I waive my rights. I don't really think is is due diligence on their part uh, on the, on behalf of justice here. So, you know, more regulations on the appropriate way to deliver advise Miranda, um, or you know, the just the immediate right uh, to have an attorney present. So I think there's there's a lot that goes into that, um, a lot of logistical obstacles for some of these. But at the end of the day, is we want to make sure we we get it right, and we're aware that a 15 year old mind is developing differently than a mature adult so we we need to treat it that way yeah i think we know that brendan you know at that time was functioning between i think it's eight and 11 years old so for all intents purposes they had you know an eight to 11 year old sitting across from them right yeah that's a good point that you make and and again i know brendan's case we talked specifically about with his vulnerabilities but we have seen false confessions in a wide range of subjects that are well-educated, um, you know, adults, and then also, you know, folks, folks like Brendan that have additional challenges. So these, these same, you know, uh, tools, I guess you could call them, or tactics is probably a better word of, you know, coercion and threats, promises, consequences that are removed, those types of things can have, can have an impact on anybody and everybody if you find yourself in the wrong, the wrong place at the wrong time. And it seems so counterintuitive to the pursuit of the truth. You know, if, if we're lying to kids, why do we need to lie to them? You know, if if yeah. we have a case, why are we lying to kids? Agreed. And I, what's, what's important to think is 
uh, you know, I've been in, kind of in, inspired and, and humbled by the amount of law enforcement professionals we work with and train that they have a difficult job, right? Trying to trying to sit down and get somebody to tell you they committed a crime when they do know there's a consequence. So they have no reason to tell you that. Um, they know something bad's going to happen. But as an investigator, you're trying to, to close this case to represent the victim and to protect the community and to serve justice. And there's a majority of really good, well-intended investigators that, like I said before, at the end of the day, sometimes it just comes down to training is maybe not realizing that this method I've used, you know, for the last 20 years, yes, it works, but it also might work the wrong, the wrong way. So um, I think too often we kind of uh, demonize the law enforcement professional. And in some cases that might be accurate, but I think from a majority, it's, you know, what's the culture here? Have we, what does the law allow them to do? But then secondly, what have they been trained to do within those guidelines? And I think that's education right there is I think where this all, where this all can change. Right. Like we don't know what we don't know. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And what do you hope um, we see moving forward in Brendan's case? I hope we never stop talking about it. Um, I hope that, and, and meaning that even, you know, I still have, have hope that we see a, decision that corrects this misjustice at some point. Um, there are still options out there that I know Brendan's legal team could speak to you better, better than I could, but you know, there are still options out there. So I hope obviously that a decision can be made that can at least correct this, this, uh, you know, misjustice and, and allow Brendan to be, to be free. Um, but even more globally than that, I, I, even when that does happen, I hope we don't stop talking about it because I think Brendan's case, among a lot of others that are out there, is a, is a great example of how important it is from uh, the reliability of forensic evidence, the reliability of eyewitness identification, uh, interrogation and inter interview techniques, the importance of video recording, uh, the level of education of our justice system to include judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and juries. I think there's, there's so much here that's used as a teaching point to educate and impact change that I really hope we, we never stop talking about it, but not talking about it as a, uh, as a negative, as a we need to fight for Brendan to, to, get, you know, to get him out, but talking about it hopefully as a win and as a landmark case that helps change things for the future. I couldn't disagree with you. Yeah, it's definitely one that, you know, it's, it started off as something like most people, you're just watching, and I think people lose sight of this, is you're watching a, a movie, it feels like, when you're watching Netflix, and it's not real life. And I think, you know, the more you get involved, you realize these are, these are real people. This is a, you know, this is Brendan's life, his family's life. And, you know, people also often forget um, or lose sight, I guess probably a better way to put it, of Teresa Hallback and her family. Mm. And, you know, there's multiple victims here in this case. And I, you could go on and on with who's been impacted, but it's, uh, it's inspiring to see, you know, you know, somebody like you, for example, putting on, you know, you've done a lot of education and awareness on this topic, um, specifically this podcast and bringing together really just a, a wealth of some pretty incredible experts that I've had a chance to, to work with on, on this case and some others. Um, as much as it's a bad reason 
to have to work together, uh, the positive impact that we can all have as a community is, is pretty powerful. Absolutely. And it's, it's almost a, um, a humbling experience, you know, the, the level of commitment from, from people such as yourself and, and everybody that's been involved in the appeals and, and uh, the clemency push. For me, when I first watched it, I was hoping that it was fictional, right. that I would find out in the newspapers that, you know, it was like a, an experiment. The interrogations weren't real. But when you, when you realise, when that realisation hits you, that, like you said, Brendan's, you know, a real, a real guy, and while we can turn the television off, he's in an 8 by 10 and that's just wrong. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's an interesting way to, to look at it. Yeah, every day that goes by uh, for us, we don't realize what he's dealing with, but they you know, have faith in, you know, people like Laura, Laura and Steve that are really fighting daily and the other, other folks involved, um, that the, the fight is not over um, until the decision's corrected. So have some hope. Well, that's brilliant, Dave. Thank you so much. You always provide so much insight and, and, and expertise. Yeah, keep, keep talking about it. Keep his name at the forefront and, uh, you know, and don't settle for anything less than, than impacting change. fingerprints. Nothing. Not in the RAV4, not in the trailer, not in the garage, not in the bird pit. Nowhere. True confessors don't need help with their narratives. The chief judge of the Seventh Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals described this interrogation as a ghoulish game of 20 questions in which Brendan guessed over and over again until he landed on the answer the police wanted to hear. And when he couldn't guess correctly, they led him to the answer they wanted. Who could forget how they directed him to reveal something to her head, Brendan, or who shot her in the head? This was not a contest that ended with a single knockout blow, but rather an unfair fight that led one federal judge to describe it as death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> 